0: Jamie's had an exciting week. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it because it's exciting. Uh, Jamie, just tell us a little bit of what you've been up to this week. Uh,
1: thank you. I mean, I've started a new job, but I think what you want me to talk about is that I've been brewing my own elderflower champagne, and I'm currently today uh, getting some elderflower cordial ready for my in-laws, who will be here this evening. So, uh, Um, If you think preaching on lust is tricky when it's people you don't know, imagine doing it with people you really do know. Um, So that's a little bit of what I've done. And uh, did you want to pray for me? Yeah.
0: We're exploring lust this morning, so uh, we all need prayer. Uh, Yeah, Father, I thank you for for Jamie, Lord, and I thank you for, for his heart and the word that you've given him to share with us this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now and just overflow, Lord, from what you've given him. And I pray for each of us that you would give us ears that are open and to receive a word from you this morning, God, in your name. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat>
1: uh, just while I was in the worship, actually, um, really got a sense that some of us here need to hear uh, that God's transforming power, the resurrection power, lives in us. And that's amazing hope. So everything I say, just bear that in mind. Um, this is um, a real hopeful message. Now we're doing a series of foundations looking at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I've been tasked with preaching on lust. Uh, and uh, we're going to jump in uh, to the passage now. You can find it in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now I would begin this with an anecdote or a slideshow, but I think given that I'm speaking on lust, I will just jump straight in. But bear with me, if you've already switched off, let me encourage us that we'll be pointing out a model of Godly relationships. These are principles that we can all hold on uh, or hold on to. But there is no denying that this passage is uncomfortable. So if ever you are reading something tricky, particularly in the New Testament, here's a little tip. Um, when a lawyer came to Jesus trying to trap him with a difficult question, Jesus said to him, "All the law is summed up in two commands: "Love your neighbor." ...as yourself, and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not complicated, but it isn't easy. And this is why the Christian journey lasts a lifetime. So we're going to use this framework to see what this passage tells us about ourselves, about others, and about God. And I'm going to hit these points. That what we think affects who we are. That in the Christian community, we are called to be generous with our bodies not possessive of others' bodies, and that God made our bodies to be temples of the Holy Spirit for an everlasting purpose. So let's get stuck in because this passage is full of good news. So we'll begin with thinking about ourselves. Now, when I was eight years old, our family got a dog. This was our first big pet, and it was really, really exciting. It was the day before my birthday, actually. And about a year into having this dog, it was a border collie called Archie very excitable dog could run around, be full of energy, I was winding him up something rotten. I was chasing him around the kitchen table faster and faster and faster until eventually he did what he always did, which was jump up as a greeting. Uh, sadly at that point, and still now, I'm not really that tall, so I, I got the brunt of his face and a chip in my tooth. And I remember very distinctly my mum saying to me, I was, I was about uh, nine or ten when this happened, uh-oh James, You've got those grown-up teeth for life. And uh, the importance of that only came home to me later, because although the damage was small in that occasion, 15 years later, only a few months before I got married, I thought I should go and see the dentist, because I'd maybe skipped a little bit during university. And uh, it was bad news. Three big fillings, here, here, and here. Uh, So I dutifully put myself under local anesthetic, and got them done, and ended up with what I thought was the end of a problem. I was sat eating my wedding breakfast with my new wife, new in-laws, and my parents uh, when I felt a crunch in my salad, and uh, sure enough, it turned out that what I had just chewed was a bit of my tooth that had fallen out during the starter, and sadly, I never got to finish the rest of the meal because I couldn't eat, but uh, that's that's a very sad moment for me. Um, But uh, although I was able to put some putty in and get it sorted when I got back from honeymoon, I think it was God teaching me a lesson about myself which is what I put into my body, really matters. And particularly so when we come to be married. And as I was to discover over the next few years, um, it wasn't just sugary drinks that were the problem, but my previously undealt with thought life too. Being in such a close relationship where you desire to connect with someone and do Christian life together, such things which lay hidden can and ought to come to light. But let's take a few steps back and look back at the passage. What's wrong with lust, according to Jesus? Well, to summarize what he says, to think about anyone other than our husband or wife as an object of our sexual desire will ultimately, ultimately make our bodies useless. Uh, that's really big stuff. And When I was rereading that passage to prepare, I was really struck by it. That what happens in our heads isn't private, isn't without consequence, In fact, it trickles down like a stream until it erodes a great valley between following Christ and not following him. It's strange because when it comes to food, we really understand the connection so well. When we get hungry, if we don't eat well, just get anything to hit that calorie need, something sweet, something greasy, we know that our thoughts, what we desire, will influence what our bodies become. Too much sugar, as I found out, your teeth will rot, Um, Too many calories and your bodies will get larger. So what happens when we reduce others into objects for our sexual pleasure? When we imagine those that we've given our friendship to in the ways we would imagine being with someone we're married to? Does viewing hours of pornography affect nothing? Do our thoughts simply not change who we are and not change our bodies? In fact, there was a study in the early 2000s that showed that recovering from a pornography addiction was physically tougher than recovering from a cocaine addiction. So do we let the warning of Jesus here, the instruction manual given by our maker, slip past us, quietly forgotten? If it needs to be said simply, then let me say it. Don't objectify others. Don't watch pornography. Don't yield to sexual temptation. These create unhealthy relationships. That's the basics, kind of where I'm starting from which many of you might have gathered straight away from hearing the passage. So let's take a look at some of the things that might not be so obvious. Why the absurd punishment for lust? And why is our body risking going to hell? As we heard from Georgia at the 6pm last week, um, when you get angry, the solution uh, isn't physical pain, only to offer a gift and seek forgiveness. So why the grotesque self-mutilation for lust? Well, many people before me have said that it's about preventing yourself from lusting. That if you lose an eye or a hand, you're less likely to lust. Now, I'm not a biblical expert. My PhD was in Pentecostalism. But here's my thoughts on what Jesus might be saying in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. As we know from this series, Jesus was giving a new law, or at least an interpretation of the law, to his followers. So therefore, when I'm preparing this passage, I ask myself... Well, what laws are relevant that you'd lose a hand or an eye? In fact, only one punishment merited losing a hand, and missing a hand or an eye had one consequence in Israelite law. Uh, You may not have been expecting to hear something like this, but here we go. One of the last laws given in the Torah is about the punishment for a woman intervening in a fight between her husband and another man, where she rescues her husband by grabbing the other man's genitals. The punishment is that she must have her hand cut off. Uh, It's very niche, but it'll become important, as you'll see. Um, Whatever your ethical objections might be to that law in particular, um, I think the implication that Jesus is telling us here is that we as Christians are not waiting to get caught by someone. We have to be our own judges. We have to be checking ourselves. Um, As you would know from following um, the news maybe recently, even in the church, it's clear that if you do nothing you don't get the right results. And so that's why Jesus is really teaching us here uh, and why he's using such strong language. So much of this actually complements what Jesus says in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 23, which is where he gives a commentary on the religious practice of the time. Uh, He says the point of relationship with God for Israel and for us is not only to keep the outward cup clean, our outward practice, but to clean the inside of the cup the inside of ourselves. The point of relationship with God is it changes us on the inside. Peter tells us that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Not that we should be pettily picking on each other, but we need to be working together to cut down to the roots of our fallenness here in the church. So that's that part. How about the whole of our body going into hell? What's going on there? Well, the Greek tells us that our body goes to Gehenna, literally the Valley of Hinnom, which in the literature of the time was a figurative way of speaking of a place of separation from God, much in the way we'd use hell now. But also the Valley of Hinnom was a rubbish tip, a real horrible place where people would throw their rubbish and would burn things to get rid of them. So the implication of Gehenna in this passage is clear. It's a tip where we need to get rid of things become useless. So unlike a broken appliance or a moldy carpet, we need to be keeping ourselves in check so that we remain useful to God rather than choose to give ourselves over to something which will destroy us. Jesus tells us also that when we come into this place, our goal isn't stability and keeping things the same. Our goal is holiness In that holiness, there's hope. So that's why he's telling us to do that. And I'll touch on that more in a bit. Now, the second bit was also about the law when you lose an eye or a hand. What's the consequence there if you don't have your right hand or your right eye? Well, in Israelite law, we know that if you're deformed, uh, then you are unable to enter into the temple for worship. So what I was taking there as I was reflecting on this passage is that Jesus tells us, If you are thoughtlessly engaging in this kind of behavior and practice, it's like you've chosen to exclude yourself from church. Like you've willingly banned yourself from coming to share life and to worship God. Now, I know that we are tempted to turn up to church, smile, and pretend like we have everything managed. But God desires our purity. James tells us this, that true religion is to keep pure and keep yourself unpolluted. So don't pretend that we can keep sexual sin managed. Jesus tells us to deal with it. If this sounds a bit heavy, remember too that another theme in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon in the Mount is this Jesus has come both to give the law and to fulfill the law. He's come to give us standards and to meet them in himself. And we know at the end of Matthew's gospel that Jesus does that by dying on to take our punishment uh, and upon himself that we might have life in his name. And here's the encouragement of what that means for his teaching there. Jesus is telling us that God's transforming power runs as deep as we do. There's no part of us which is unsavable. That's why Jesus teaches on it. If he was just saying, you really shouldn't lust, but there's nothing I can do about it, then that would be for our condemnation. He's teaching on it because he wants us to enter into that freedom. So that's for ourselves. How about now for others, our neighbor? What do we learn here? Well, as uh, Lewis said, I've been at this church just uh, coming up three years, and I will be married just about four to Zoe. And... uh, Just a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of seeing my sister get married in the church that I grew up in. And actually, my dad recently um, got ordained, and he was able to conduct the service. And it was a really special day. And as I was coming to uh, Laura's uh, wedding, I was given the chance to write um, a poem for her, to to give at the day, um, because I like writing poetry. And it was a really good chance to reflect on what have I learned from three, almost four years of marriage I won't read you the poem, but I will tell you uh, a joke. The saying goes that if you keep quiet when you're wrong, you're wise. But if you keep quiet when you know you're right, you must be married. (laughs) Now, I have actually learned a lot more over the last four years than just that, and lost more than just the hair on my head. But primarily, I've learned that Jesus' teaching on lust is freedom, and it's the basis for healthy relationships. And this is why it's so um, brilliant to be able to talk to us about this topic this morning. But I feel maybe we need to highlight what's the principle that makes lust so destructive in the first place. Well, Jesus tells us the problem with lust is that it is possessive, not generous. Lust is a bottomless pit which demands more and more and more of the person lusting until it consumes even them. It's a pit in which we pour ourselves, our time, and our energies into, which, until a point in which we cannot even get out. Lust wants to possess others for our pleasure, but by giving it space, we get entirely consumed. Those outside the church tell us you're getting all a bit uptight. Just live a little, engage, enjoy, whatever. We're animals anyway. It doesn't matter, but... We see what's going on, and we as a church need to be sending a positive message. What do positive relationships really look like? And when I look at what the world has to offer, I despair. Whole profitable industries film months' worth of content every day, which urges that we buy into satisfying our sexual desires virtually. Advertising uses flawless models in the hope that if we stare at attractive, successful people, we'll be persuaded into parting with our money in pursuit of a fantasy. Here, Jesus is grabbing us by the shoulders and shaking us from our comatose consumption. Be careful, don't spend your energy, your time, and your money on what doesn't satisfy. Many think that it's the church that lives in the land of make-believe, but Jesus here is the one telling us to turn back to reality. After all, it's the people and the world that God himself has made, and these are the very things that he's come to save. For comparison, lust has nothing to offer us. What will those daydreams pay you in return? What will those hours spent on the adult websites give you back? The truth is, those outside the church have given up hoping for holiness and have given up hoping for change. They have seen our flaws, and as insidiously as gambling websites, they hope to profit from our misery. But here's the good news for us all. Whether we feel that we struggle with lust Or not. The church is a place where we find generosity and not possession. To use a really, really simple analogy, if Zoe and I both sat at home with our feet up, waiting to be served by the other person, we'd be waiting all day and neither of us would be served. But if we were both hard at work, uh, doing chores, loving, caring, and putting the other person first, then we'd find that all day we were being both served and honored. We might rightly be sick and tired of cheesy dating books like Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but we might too quickly have tired from Jesus' teaching to be servants of one another's. Good relationships are not about how far is too far, because that advice only lasts as long as one person dates another. Good relationships are about how far we ought to serve the other person, because this advice lasts for as long as God puts people around us. While the adult entertainment industry, our fantasizing and our selfishness is a giving up of ourselves for nothing in return, becoming slaves to sin. In Christ, we have a master who makes himself our servant. He washes feet. He surrenders his own body to a painful death on a cross that we might have free, full, bodily, satisfying lives. Good relationships are about generosity to others rather than possession. As Paul says in Galatians, you, my brother and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus found those who'd been victims of lust, the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, and he treated them as precious creations. And he gave them a new identity in his kingdom. These women who had been voiceless objects to be bought. Became the first proclaimers of God's good news as disciples of Christ. The kingdom is about putting the last in first place. Jesus says to those that have been hurt by abuse, been trapped in unhealthy relationships and affairs, Neither do I condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. So Jesus models that generosity to others, but do you? Do we proclaim forgiveness? and then model holiness? Or are we quick to judge and slow to repent? So lastly now, as we take a really big picture look at at what this tells us about God, I want to leave us with a roadmap for hope. Firstly, I said at the beginning that Jesus' words are the instruction manual, how we use the product, as it were. But sometimes we forget what the product actually is. So let me remind us, as Paul says, your bodies are temples of the holy spirit who is in you whom you've received from god you are not your own you are bought at a price therefore honor god with your bodies our bodies not our churches or english cathedrals or cosmic universe or internal psyche the very stuff of our physical matter is where god dwells these bodies in the kingdom are given eternal purpose they're to be used to glorify god's to give themselves to loving our brothers and sisters, to proclaiming good news and to bringing life. Jesus' bodily resurrection and the scars that he bore are the basis of our hope and a promise that these bodies we have right now will be the seeds of the bodies we will have forever. To rephrase what my mum said to me after the dog chipped my tooth, these bodies, brothers and sisters, are your grown-up bodies. You have them for life and for everlasting life. So the implication of this is that we ought to take time to see people not as objects for our pleasure, but as subjects of God who we can partner with for an everlasting pursuit. I was preparing this passage and uh, thinking about who are good models for the transformation that happens between being trapped in a place of lust, freedom in the kingdom and I stumbled again upon Rahab who some of you may know appears in Joshua 2 when the Israelites had left Egypt through Exodus and were hoping to enter into the promised land they were very afraid and Joshua sends some spies to gather some info for him and some spies come into Jericho which is a fortified city and when they go in there the king finds out and says to um to the the guards say can you find for me the Israelite spies Who have come into Jericho. And Rahab, who ran a brothel and herself was a prostitute, most likely, took in these two spies, hid them under flax in her roof, and when the guards came, she said, I think you've just missed them. They've just left the gate. If you go now, you'll overtake them and pursue them. We, We know, of course, that she lets them down through a red scarlet thread down her window, and the men escape and return with the news. So that when the Israelites come to invade the city of Jericho, Rahab and her family are spared. And I knew that before, and I thought that's a wonderful story, but what I hadn't appreciated, and particularly in light of her profession, is the amazing story of redemption that Rahab ended with, for she was eventually to bear a family um, within this, the people of God. And her grandson was Boaz, whose great-grandson was King David whose great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson great -great 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 eventually was Jesus. And if that's not an amazing story for what happens when we turn from serving our own desires to serving God's kingdom with our bodies, then I don't know what is. And if you want to read more about that in your own time, it's in Joshua 2, in Matthew, the very beginning, in Hebrews 11, and in James 2. Uh, Secondly, let me finish by uh, reminding us of the challenge. Jesus is to be taken seriously. His words, as Peter said, our life. So if you're pouring yourself into that Gehenna rubbish pit and making yourself unavailable for God, pray for freedom. Paul tells us it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So if any, in any way you've made something master over you that you can't break from, don't be ashamed, but confess to your brothers and sisters. Find prayerful friends to support you, and we run a recovery course here in church which helps with addiction. We all should keep account of the daily tracks we make through the fields of our mind. We should ask ourselves, where do we go to when we drift off? What are we thinking? Where do we still need the mind of Christ? Remember, as I said, that God's transforming power runs as deep as we do. Nothing is beyond his gracious reach. So bring things out to light for healing. And finally, let me share that freedom is freeing. I said that Jesus' teaching teaching wasn't complicated, but it isn't easy at the start. But also, Jesus tells us that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. Living in the reality of life rather than fantasy is freedom. We are called to live for generous love rather than possessive pleasure, and to live for the servant Lord rather than the sinful master. We're picked up and put on our feet by a God who does not condemn us, but longs that we will walk the way of the cross, And in dying to our sinful selves, we'll find everlasting freedom. None of this is possible without God dwelling in us. It's his work, and we have only to take the first step out of the boat. Amen. Amen. And uh, just, I, I know that those are very much principles of holiness, but if you want to wrestle through some of the practicalities, find my details on church suite, send me an email or text me, and I'll be around to pray. But this is something we really can do. God really transforms uh, and do really hold on to the hope and the freedom that we have in Christ.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, really powerful stuff. What we'd love to do is um, I'd love to invite the band up. Um, we're just going to take a moment to um, to ask the Holy Spirit to, uh, to come and speak into our heart, to potentially reveal um, some of those, those places that Jamie's been speaking into. And, and as I said before Jamie started, I, I really sort of sense that God is wanting to pour out hope um, into this place and into our lives, and um, just to say, we're, we're going to move into a time of just just inviting God to come and speak to us, and, and a chance to pray for one another, um, and and. Re-